0: Chapter ten of the Book of the Damned This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org Recording by JC Guan The Book of the Damned by Charles Fort Chapter ten Early explorers have Florida mixed up with Newfoundland, but the confusion is worse than that still earlier. It arises from simplicity. Very early explorers think that all land westward is one land, India. Awareness of other lands as well as India comes as a slow process. I do not now think of things arriving upon this earth from some especial other world. That was my notion when I started to collect our data. Or, as is a commonplace of observation... All intellection begins with the illusion of homogeneity. It's one of Spencer's data. We see homogeneousness in all things distant, or with which we have small acquaintance. Advance from the relatively homogeneous to the relatively heterogeneous is Spencerian philosophy, like everything else so called. Not that it was really Spencer's discovery, but was taken from von Baer who in turn was continuous with preceding evolutionary speculation. Our own expression is that all things are acting to advance to the homogeneous, or are trying to localize homogenousness. Homogenousness is an aspect of the universal, wherein it is a state that does not merge away into something else. We regard homogenousness as an aspect of positiveness, but it is our acceptance that infinite frustrations of attempts to positivize manifest themselves in infinite heterogeneity, so that, though things try to localize homogeneousness, they end up in heterogeneity, so great that it amounts to infinite dispersion or indistinguishability. So all concepts are little attempted positivenesses, but soon have to give in to compromise, modification, nullification, merging away into the indistinguishability, unless, here and there, in the world's history, there may have been a super-dogmatist, who, for only an infinitesimal of time, has been able to hold out against heterogeneity, or modification, or doubt, or, quote, listening to reason, end quote, or loss of identity, in which case, instant translation to heaven, or the positive absolute. Odd thing about Spencer is that he never recognized that homogeneity, integration, and definiteness are all words for the same state, or the state that we call positiveness. What we call his mistake is in that he regarded homogeneousness as negative. I began with a notion of some one other world, from which objects and substances have fallen to this earth, which had, or which, to less degree, has a tutelary interest in this earth, which is now attempting to communicate with this earth, modifying, because of data which will pile up later, into acceptance that some other world is not attempting, but has been, for centuries, in communication with a sect, perhaps or a secret society, or certain esoteric ones of this earth's inhabitants. I lose a great deal of hypnotic power in not being able to concentrate attention upon some one other world. As I have admitted before, I'm intelligent, as contrasted with the orthodox. I haven't the aristocratic disregard of a New York curator or an Eskimo medicine man." I have to dissipate myself in acceptance of a host of other worlds. Size of the moon, some of them. One of them, at least. Tremendous thing. We'll take that up later. Vast, amorphous aerial regions, to which such definite words as worlds and planets seem inapplicable. And artificial constructions that I have called superconstructions, one of them, about the size of Brooklyn, I should say, offhand. And one or more of them wheel-shaped things, a goodly number of square miles in area. I think that earlier in this book, before we liberalized into embracing everything that comes along, your indignation, or indigestion, would have expressed in the notion that, if this were so, Astronomers would have seen these other worlds and regions and vast geometric constructions. You'd have that notion. You'd have had that notion. You'd have stopped there. But the attempt to stop is saying enough to the insatiable. In cosmic punctuation there are no periods. Illusions of periods is incomplete view of colons and semicolons. We can't stop with the notion that if there were such phenomena, astronomers would have seen them. Because of our experience with suppression and disregard, we suspect, before we go into the subject at all, that astronomers have seen them, that navigators and meteorologists have seen them, that individual scientists and other trained observers have seen them many times, that it is the system that has excluded data of them. As to the law of gravitation, and astronomers' formulas, remember that these formulas worked out in the time of Laplace as well as they do now. But there are hundreds of planetary bodies now known that were then not known. So a few hundred worlds more of ours won't make any difference. Laplace knew about only thirty bodies in this solar system. About six hundred are recognized now. What are the discoveries of geology and biology to a theologian? His formulas still work out as well as they ever did. If the law of gravitation could be stated as a real utterance, it might be a real resistance to us. But we are told only that gravitation is gravitation. Of course, to an intermediatist, nothing can be defined except in terms of itself. But even the orthodox, in what seems to me to be the innate premonitions of realness, not founded upon experience, agree that to define a thing in terms of itself is not real definition. It is said that by gravitation is meant the attraction of all things proportionately to mass, and inversely as the square of the distance. Mass would mean interattraction holding together final particles, if there were final particles. Then, until final particles be discovered, only one term of this expression survives, for mass is attraction. But distance is only extent of mass, unless one holds out for absolute vacuum among planets, a position against which we could bring a host of data. But there is no possible means of expressing that gravitation is anything other than attraction. So there is nothing to resist us but such a phantom as that gravitation is the gravitation of all gravitations proportionately to gravitation and inversely as the square of gravitation. In quasi-existence, nothing more sensible than this can be set upon any so-called subject. Perhaps there are higher approximations to ultimate sensibleness. Nevertheless, we seem to have a feeling that with the system against us, we have a kind of resistance here. We'd have felt so formerly, at any rate. I think that Dr. Grays and Professor Hitchcock's have modified our trustfulness toward indistinguishability. As to the perfection of this system that quasi-opposes us, and the infallibility of its mathematics, as if there could be real mathematics in a mode of seeming where twice two are not four, we've been told over and over of their vindication in the discovery of Neptune. I'm afraid that the course we're taking will turn out like every other development. We began humbly, admitting that we're of the damned. But our eyebrows— just a faint flicker in them, or in one of them, every time we hear of the quote, triumphal discovery of Neptune, end quote, this quote, monumental achievement of theoretical astronomy, end quote, as the textbooks call it. The whole trouble is that we've looked it up. The textbooks omit this, that instead of the orbit of Neptune agreeing with the calculations of Adams and Leverrier, it was so different that Leverrier said that it was not the planet of his calculations. Later, it was thought best to say no more upon that subject. The textbooks omit this, that in 1846, everyone who knew a sign from a cosine was out signing and cosigning for a planet beyond Uranus. Two of them guessed right. To some minds, even after Leverrier's own rejection of Neptune, the word "guessed" may be objectionable. But according to Professor Pierce of Harvard, the calculations of Adams and Leverrier would have applied quite as well to positions many degrees from the position of Neptune. Or, for Professor Pierce's demonstration that the discovery of Neptune was only a. Quote, Happy accident. End quote. See the proceedings of the American Academy of Sciences, one sixty-five. For references, see Lowell's Evolution of Worlds. Or comets, another nebulous resistance to our own notions. As to eclipses, I have notes upon several of them that did not occur upon scheduled time, though with differences only of seconds and one delightful lost soul, deep buried, but buried in the ultra-respectable records of the Royal Astronomical Society, upon an eclipse that did not occur at all. That delightful, ultra-sponsored thing of perdition is too good and malicious to be dismissed with passing notice. We'll have him later. Throughout the history of astronomy, Every comet that has come back upon predicted time—not that, essentially, there was anything more abstruse about it than is a prediction that you can make of a postman's periodicities tomorrow—was advertised for all it was worth. It's the way reputations are worked up for fortune-tellers by the faithful. The comets that didn't come back, omitted, or explained, or anxious comet— It came back slower and slower. But the astronomers explained. Be almost absolutely sure of that. They explained. They had it all worked out and formulated and proved why that comet was coming back slower and slower. And there the damned thing began coming faster and faster. Halley's Comets. Astronomy. Quote, The perfect science as we astronomers like to call it.' Jacoby. It's my own notion that if, in a real existence, an astronomer could not tell one longitude from another, he'd be sent back to this purgatory of ours until he could meet that simple requirement. Halley was sent to the Cape of Good Hope to determine its longitude. He got it degrees wrong. He gave to Africa's noble Roman promontory A retrusive twist that would take the pride out of any kaffir. We hear everlastingly of Halley's Comet. It came back. Maybe. But unless we look the matter up in contemporaneous records, we hear nothing of the Leonids, for instance. But the same methods are those by which Halley's Comet was predicted. The Leonids were predicted. November 1898. No Leonids. It was explained. They had been perturbed. They would appear in November 1899. November 1899. November 1900. No Leonids. My notion of astronomic accuracy. Who could not be a prize marksman if only his hits be recorded? As to Halley's Comet of 1910, "'Everybody now swears he saw it. "'He has to perjure himself, "'otherwise he'd be accursed "'of having no interest in great, "'inspiring things "'that he's never given any attention to. "'Regard this, "'that there never is a moment "'when there is not some comet in the sky. "'Virtually, there is no year "'in which several new comets "'are not discovered. "'So plentiful are they. "'Luminous fleas on a vast black dog.' In popular impressions, there is no realization of the extent to which this solar system is flea-bitten. If a comet have not the orbit that astronomers have predicted, perturbed. If, like Halley's comet, it be late, even a year late, perturbed. When a train is an hour late, we have small opinion of the predictions of timetables. When a comet's a year late, all we ask is that it be explained. We hear of the inflation and arrogance of astronomers. My own acceptance is not that they are imposing upon us, that they are requiting us. For many of us priests no longer function to give a seeming report with perfection. Infallibility the positive absolute astronomers have stepped forward to fill a vacancy with quasi phantomosity but, in our acceptance, with a higher approximation to substantiality than had the attenuations that preceded them. I should say myself that all that we call progress is not so much response to urge as it is response to a hiatus. Or, if you want something to grow somewhere, dig out everything else in its area. So I have to accept that the positive assurances of astronomers are necessary to us, or the blunderings, evasions, and disguises of astronomers would never be tolerated, that, given such latitude as they are permitted to take, they could not be very disastrously mistaken. Suppose the comet called Halley's had not appeared. Early in 1910 a far more important comet than the anemic luminosity said to be Halley's appeared it was so brilliant that it was visible in daylight. The astronomers would have been saved anyway. If this other comet did not have the predicted orbit, perturbation. If you're going to Coney Island and predict there'll be a special kind of a pebble on the beach, I don't see how you can disgrace yourself, if some other pebble will do just as well. Because the feeble thing said to have been seen in 1910 was no more in accord with the sensational description given out by astronomers in advance than is a pale pebble with a brick-red boulder. I predict that next Wednesday a large chinaman in evening clothes will cross Broadway at forty-second street at nine p.m. He doesn't, but a tubercular Jap in a sailor's uniform does cross Broadway at thirty-fifth street Friday at noon. Well, A Jap is a perturbed Chinaman, and clothes are clothes. I remember the terrifying predictions made by the honest and credulous astronomers, who must have been themselves hypnotized, or they could not have hypnotized the rest of us, in 1909. wills were made. Human life might be swept from this planet. In quasi-existence, which is essentially Hibernian, That would be no reason why wills should not be made. The less excitable of us did expect at least some pretty good fireworks. I have to admit that it is said that in New York a light was seen in the sky. It was about as terrifying as the scratch of a match on the seat of some breeches half a mile away. It was not on time. Though I have heard that a faint nebulosity which I did not see myself, though I looked when I was told to look, was seen in the sky. It appeared several days after the time predicted. A hypnotized host of imbeciles of us told to look up at the sky. We did, like a lot of pointers hypnotized by a partridge. The effect? Almost everybody now swears that he saw Halley's Comet, and that it was a glorious spectacle— an interesting circumstance here is that seemingly we are trying to discredit astronomers because astronomers oppose us. That is not my impression. We shall be in the Brahmin caste of the hell of the Baptists. Almost all our data in some regiments of this possession are observations by astronomers, few of them mere amateur astronomers. It is the system that opposes us. It is the system that is suppressing astronomers. I think we pity them in their captivity. Ours is not malice, in a positive sense. It's chivalry, somewhat. Unhappy astronomers looking out from high towers in which they are imprisoned. We appear upon the horizon. But, as I have said, our data do not relate to some especial other world— I mean very much what a savage upon an ocean island might vaguely think of in his speculations. Not upon some other land, but complexes of continents and their phenomena. Cities, factories in cities, means of communication. Now all the other savages would know of a few vessels sailing in their regular routes, passing this island in regularized periodicities. THE TENDENCY IN THESE MINDS WOULD BE EXPRESSION OF THE UNIVERSAL TENDENCY TOWARDS POSITIVISM, OR COMPLETENESS, OR CONVICTION, THAT THESE FEW REGULARIZED VESSELS CONSTITUTED ALL. NOW I THINK OF SOME ESPECIAL SAVAGE WHO SUSPECTS OTHERWISE, BECAUSE is VERY BACKWARD AND UNIMAGINATIVE AND INSENSIBLE TO THE BEAUTIFUL IDEALS OF THE OTHERS, NOT PIOUSLY OCCUPIED LIKE OTHERS in bowing before impressive-looking sticks of wood, dishonestly taking time for his speculations, while the others are patriotically witch-finding. So the other higher and nobler savages know about the few regularized vessels, know when to expect them, have their periodicities all worked out, just about when the vessels will pass, or eclipse each other. "'Explaining that all vagaries were due to atmospheric conditions. "'They'd come out strong in explaining. "'You can't read a book upon savages without noting what resolute explainers they are. "'They'd say that all this mechanism was founded upon the mutual attraction of the vessels, "'deduced from the fall of a monkey from a palm-tree, "'or, if not that, that devils were pushing the vessels, something of the kind.' Storms, the breeze not from the vessels, cast up by the waves, disregarded. How can one think of something and something else too? I am in the state of mind of a savage who might find upon a shore washed up by the same storm, buoyant parts of a piano and a paddle that was carved by cruder hands than his own, something light and summary from India and a fur overcoat from Russia. Or all science, though approximating wider and wider, is attempt to conceive of India in terms of an ocean island, and of Russia in terms of India, so interpreted. Though I am trying to think of Russia and India in world-wide terms, I cannot think that that, or the universalizing of the local, is cosmic purpose. THE HIGHER IDEALIST IS THE POSITIVIST WHO TRIES TO LOCALIZE THE UNIVERSAL, AND IS IN ACCORD WITH COSMIC PURPOSE. THE SUPERDOGMATIST OF A LOCAL SAVAGE WHO CAN HOLD OUT WITHOUT A FLURRY OF DOUBT THAT A PIANO WASHED UP ON A BEACH IS THE TRUNK OF A PALM-TREE THAT A SHARK HAS BITTEN, LEAVING HIS TEETH IN IT. SO WE FEAR FOR THE SOUL OF DR. GRAY, BECAUSE he did not devote his whole life to that one stand that, whether possible or inconceivable, thousands of fishes had been cast from one bucket. So, unfortunately for myself, if salvation be desirable, I look out widely, but amorphously, indefinitely, and heterogeneously. If I say I conceive of another world that is now in secret communication— with certain esoteric inhabitants of this earth, I say, I conceive, of still other worlds that are trying to establish communication with all the inhabitants of this earth. I fit my notions to the data I find. That is supposed to be the right and logical and scientific thing to do. But it is no way to approximate to form, system, organization." Then I think I conceive of other worlds and vast structures that pass us by, within a few miles, without the slightest desire to communicate, quite as tramp vessels pass many islands without particularizing one from another. Then I think I have data of a vast construction that has often come to this earth, dipped into an ocean, submerged there a while, then going away. Why? Why? I'm not absolutely sure. How would an Eskimo explain a vessel sending ashore for coal, which is plentiful upon some arctic beaches, though of unknown use to the natives, than sailing away with no interest in the natives? A great difficulty is trying to understand vast constructions that show no interest in us. The notion that we must be interesting. I accept that though were usually avoided, probably for moral reasons, sometimes this earth has been visited by explorers. I think that the notion that there have been extra-mundane visitors to China, within what we call the historic period, will be only ordinarily absurd, when we come to that datum. I accept that some of the other worlds are of conditions very similar to our own. I think of others that are very different— so that visitors from them could not live here without artificial adaptations. How some of them could breathe our attenuated air, if they come from a gelatinous atmosphere. Masks. The masks that have been found in ancient deposits. Most of them are of stone, and are said to have been ceremonial regalia of savages. But the mask that was found in Sullivan County, Missouri, in 1879, American Antiquarian 3-336. It is made of iron and silver. End of chapter 10. Read by J. C. Guan. Montreal, November 2008.